Hello and welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 717. I'm Jim McDowell and believe it or not guys, Richard's with me tonight. Rich, say hello to all the friends. Hello everybody. Uh, hello Jim. It's been a little while, hasn't it? We've been busy with our respective interviews and banter with other people, but no, great to be back chatting about bike racing with you. Yeah, if you guys have not heard the interviews, sort of the interview series that Rich and I have done, you're missing out. There has been some fantastic catch-ups, chats. Rich sat down with Martin, former host, and got his thoughts. Very cool interview. Uh, I sat down with Skylar, former host, my buddy. That was a pretty good chat, I thought. Yeah, great to hear these voices again, Jim. Right. And then to top it off, Rich came back with uh, James Hayden as the last episode. So, yeah, it's been great that we've been able to get a hold of these people. And um, we're looking forward to some more good interviews this year. Or at least try to get as many people in before the season starts. Because with 22 races, there's not going to be time <laughs> to really get a hold of anybody else. So, yep. if you guys have not heard those, please go back and listen to them. They are all quite interesting. Before we go on, Rich, a little bit of housekeeping. We want to thank our friends, Keith Kovac, Nick Saban, Alan Fleming, and our friends at Patreon for donating to the show, keeping the lights on, keeping us going. It's greatly appreciated, everyone. If you can and you like the show and you have the means by which to do so, please go to our webpage, www.motopodcast.com. There are links for PayPal and Patreon to donate to the show. If you don't have the means, that's great, fine, but you're listening do us a favor, go over to your favorite podcast provider, leave us a review and a rating. That'll help push us to the top of the algorithm and more people will be able to find us. With all that said, Rich, considering we've had three, four interviews in there that we've had before this, I think we're going to cover some news that's now happening yep. and uh, finish up with finally rider rankings from Moto3, which I know you guys have been waiting for to hear what <laughs> yeah. have to say about that. Thank you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> everybody's been holding on to this like guys you've been giving us these interviews i really want to know about this no i know not i know that's not true guy okay so news rich i think we'll start here right so we want to start with uh moto gp news let's mm -hmm. start there so the moto gp sepang shakedown test has already happened uh fernandez and all the test riders were on track but it has been rain affected in the first two days. The main takeaway here will be uh, relief at Yamaha that the top speed in the new engine has been found. Any other things you want to state to that one, Rich? Yeah, I mean, not unusually in Sepang, rain has obviously played its part. So that will have disrupted some of the plans, I'm sure. But yes, from what I've been reading and hearing on a couple of things... The Yamaha top speed has been looking pretty good. So I think this kind of puts to bed any major worries that they had on the back of the... It was Mazana, wasn't it, where they had this sort of strange glitch. It was obviously a maybe an ECU programming, mapping. Something obviously wasn't quite right there, um, which resulted in Fabio Quattararo in particular being very unhappy about the top speed of the bike, which had vanished prior to, you know, compared to the previous test that they had had. Anyway, Crutchlow has been setting some pretty decent speed trap times over the three days. The test happened, well, of course, we're juggling time zones here, so it's already the day after in Sepang now. But yesterday uh, was the final day. It was dry. Not surprisingly, Michele Pirro on the Ducati was the fastest. KTM had some new aero on the bike that we've all been waiting to see, very much along the lines of what we've seen on the Aprilia in terms of this kind of downforce side bodywork kind of deal going on. So no doubt that we'll see lots of development as that as time goes by. The test proper in terms of all of the main season riders will start on this friday and it runs friday saturday and sunday and as we've written in our notes jim all eyes i think are going to be on number 93 because of his outburst i think that's a reasonable way of putting it isn't it 
at the end of the last test where you can tell the story again just to refresh mm-hmm. people's memories but Honda obviously have had a few months or what a couple of months now to go away and try and deal with some of the issues that he was unhappy about so we will start to see from Friday if any of this has been resolved yep these all kind of go hand in hand here at the end but I am very interested to see what happens with Mark Marquez I think it was very evident that Marquez believes he is capable of winning another championship, maybe another couple championships, yep. provided that he gets a motorcycle that he can ride. It seems as though that the Honda had no power, no grip, and no stability on the brakes, which is not going to work for Marquez in the way that he rides. The front end has to be planted for him to do the magic that he has, and he's definitely not getting that right now. So Honda being Honda, you have to believe deep down inside that they can go back and in a couple of months time, produce several different frames, maybe not a whole lot with the engine, but definitely some frames, suspension links, swing arms, all that kind of stuff. They, they have the might, they have the power, they have the money, they have everything to be able to build all these different bits and bobs and whatnot. And you almost got to believe that they would be, if they're smart, they're willing to roll chassis out of the museum if they have to, so that Mark can run back to back to back with things that he has ridden in the past that he likes and go from there. Now, that having been said, it was also a lot. He did tend to walk some of the statements back that, hey, look, it's not personal. It's just like we need to do it. It suddenly became a more we thing. Right. Like Mm. we have to do better and we need to change our direction and we need to learn about what we need to do to catch up to what the European teams have in aerodynamics. Part of that, if you followed Marquez's Instagram, what used to be a very small bicep on his injured right arm, it is now the exact same size as what his left is. It is scarred beyond belief. But you know that Marquez has put the effort in to put the muscle back on and to strengthen that arm. That's his way of looking at HRC going, I've done my part. You have to do your part. And I have to believe with these next two news items that HRC has stepped to the plate in some respects. The first thing is that they hired former Suzuki technical director Ken Kawachi. I think is how you pronounce it. That's a pretty good go. I think that's about right. Uh, yeah. Japanese names are difficult. I should have had Skylar's wife <laughs> tell me <laughs> how to pronounce it in phonetics so I could get it right. But that's the guy who was what chief technical. He's the guy who set the bikes up sort of for both Rins and Mir, which you almost believe that those two guys suddenly decided when that news was released, God, we're all giddy and dancing around in the pit box that, well, wait a minute, a guy that we've worked with, a guy who knows us, trusts us with what we have to say is essentially at the helm here therein jim lies a interesting dynamic that's going to develop and unfold perhaps even as early as the next few days because given ken Quachi's kind of previous relationship particularly with joanne mia who is obviously in the hrc squad now who's he going to turn to first in terms of that familiarity i mean marquez as you say and it is absolutely no coincidence that his social media presence over the last two to three months has been massive compared to what it's ever been before so he's clearly sending the signal to hrc that he's back he's fit he's ready to go and they'd better be ready for him hrc had a big reshuffle in that team as well they've moved a lot of people around ken's come in from suzuki of course i mean that is a great signing for them yeah i mean 
Marquez is probably, let's say, on the lee side of the slope in terms of his career now, and particularly with the injuries that he's had and some of the ongoing problems that he has, particularly with the eye, which is obviously always going to be there and possibly a problem for him. Whereas Mia is probably the future. And, and so they're caught in this awkward development kind of left or right turn, I think, now. Do they develop the bike for Marquez? Or do they go more down the Suzuki route and try and make a more rideable bike that perhaps Joan Mir and, of course, Alex Rins over in the ALCR squad is going to be able to really go at it hard on without falling off all the time? So I, I can't wait to see how this one's going to turn out, but I have no idea which way it's going to go at the moment. It is going to put a bit of a personal dynamic into this scene. Now, I don't think that what Marquez does or says is not well thought through. There is emotion in what he says. I'm not going to discount any of that. Everybody has that. But I do think a lot of what he said was measured. At least the beginning statements were not (laughs) because he just blew up and went, he went batshit crazy, right? I would too. But there's been no direction in which for Honda to actually go. When Honda does not have a single strong voice to decide what they are going to do with the motorcycle, it doesn't work. I give you any time, you know, look at the downside between when they had before they basically got Rossi and doing there was that gap that HRC really didn't know what to do. So they did what they always did. They go back and pray at the altar for speed. He said, well, just make a faster motorcycle. Mm. Well, that doesn't work. It's got a handle. And they tend to follow that. And I think that they've done that here, too. Well, and the big elephant in the room now, Jim, of course, is Aero, isn't it? And they are. Oh, yeah. You know, they have been behind. Now, that's not to say they haven't caught up some ground over the last few months because they'll be busy in the wind tunnel, I'm very, very sure. But, you know, they are coming from quite a way back, I think, of all the factors. I think probably Honda are the ones that are the most out of step when it comes to Aero. So, yeah, I mean, hard to know which way this is going to go, but I think they're probably spreading their bets but in doing so they might find themselves back in a kind of stalemate position if they're not terribly careful yeah but let's see this season do you quote martin is the best season ever <laughs> well but just because of the internal drama that's gonna come i mean yeah. somebody just needs to put a gopro on the corner of the garage and just let it run 24 7 because there's <laughs> you're gonna catch something that's gonna be wickedly amazing because someone somewhere is going to slip up and it's just gonna be you know, it's going to look like the Italians all hand waving in there. It's not yeah. going to be pretty. Now, if you want the conspiracy side of me, this is Marquez basically saying, hey, KTM, I'm used to riding orange bikes. I don't think you're a million miles off, to be honest with you. I mean, if he can't get it at HRC, he will go somewhere else to try and get that championship that he wants. And I yeah. personally would love to see him go to another team. I mean, I've said that before on this show. Oh, yeah. I know. Nothing against people that win all their titles on a single, you know, manufacturer. It's a great achievement winning the title, but I think there is something special about doing it on more than one manufacturer. That that really does cement your place in the books, as far as I'm concerned. So yeah, it's not beyond the realms of possibility. He's still got a good few years in him, I think, and he's clearly, I think so. you know, what we've seen, as I said, you know, all these training montages that he's putting out and all this social media stuff. He's clearly up for the fight. So yeah, bring it on. I'm just going to shed a blue tear when there aren't two blue bikes out on the grid. The manufacturer that won the last race of the last season, and they're not there anymore. I mean, that's a real shame. But anyway, anyway. Yeah. And since you started talking about blue bikes, let's talk about the other blue bike that's in the pits, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's getting to be more black than it is blue, but... Gone camo, hasn't it? It's gone yeah, it's gone camo now, so now we, we'll never be able to see it on track. <laughs> but, <laughs> Which might prove to be a good thing, but we'll see. Yeah, but former Suzuki MotoGP electronics guru Tom O'Kane 
has been hired by Yamaha. Now, those of you who don't know who Tom O'Kane is, let me fill you in a little bit because this guy is kind of like my closet engineer hero because back in the 90s, he was one of the first people to put data acquisition on a motorcycle. And he did it with Kenny Roberts' team. And that all-conquering 1990, all the Kings men, Marvel Yamaha that they had, right? You had Rainey, you had Lawson. They were both on the 500s. And Kaczynski was on the 250. And they won both titles. And a lot of it was due to Kane. Matt Oxley has a very good article about Tom Kane and the latest issue of, or it's on the Motorsport Magazine website. He had one of these big old desktop computers and you had to be very careful walking into the truck in the 90s to talk to King Kenny because you could basically disrupt the hard the floppy drive running on the <laughs> desktop unit. And O'Kane wouldn't have his data, but it was one of the, so he was one of the first people to actually start laying down these traces. And you could see Rainey's, how he would be on the throttle You'd see him roll the throttle off to catch the slide, then roll back onto and hold steady to finish the slide. And then as he had all the power or as he had all the traction he needed, he would roll the throttle on the rest of the way. That's been then supplanted. He did went from there to do basically stick figure motorcycles that you could see the suspension move and watch that. And it was very cool. He's actually written a doctorate for his PhD in motorcycle physics. And Matt actually shares some of that with you. And he had taken that thesis and given it to some other gurus of electronics that exist in the paddock and MotoGP. And all of them are like, whoa, that is like the most in-depth, well-thought-out mathematical formula to simulate what's happening in a motorcycle that they've ever seen. This guy is the, the best of the best, the sharp of the sharp. And uh, with Quattararo, and you tell Quattararo that this is what's wrong, and this is what the bike's doing, and this is how you correct it. Quattararo, to me, seems to be the kind of person that would change on a dime to make it go faster. I don't think Quattararo was, no, this is my setup. I'm not going to change. I think Quattararo would literally change at the drop of a hat. They all do, don't they? They'll do whatever it takes to be faster. Oh, yeah. So, anyway. Yamaha are going for it. I mean, you know, uh-huh. I don't think it's too much of an overstatement to say that this is possibly the last hurrah of the inline four. So, Yamaha persisting with that engine configuration in the ground soil of V4s and so on. Now that Suzuki's gone, I think, yeah, Yamaha's the last inline four mm-hmm. cylinder bike on the grid, isn't it? So, yep. you know, I think this season is pivotal as to whether that concept can compete with the v4s as an engine i know there's obviously other factors to this and that you know they are throwing a lot behind it do you think yamaha would build a v4 let me ask you that i wouldn't be surprised if they've already got one on the drawing board or on you know secretly in the test center somewhere but i, I think they are that their dna is in line four cylinders isn't it so i uh-huh. think they will give it up with an absolute struggle and i think as you say, Jim, I mean, people like Tom O'Kane, you can't, well, we could do a whole podcast on people like that. So, you know, they're really going for it. And, you know, our losses, Suzuki going out of the championship has been the gain of several of the teams up and down the pit lane in terms of recruiting key people, as we were just talking about with HRC as well. So, you know, it appears that the Yamaha's got its speed back. So it's a sweet handling bike. So provided that hasn't been disrupted, maybe Fabio's back in the game. Who knows what Morbidelli will do? I mean, a little bit hard to know really where he's going to settle into things but the other piece of news rumor that we haven't really written down on the notes but is the persistent rumor that Jorge Martin is in quite advanced talks with Yamaha works team to go in there so 
you know, the silly season that used to start in August could even happen before the first round, the way things are these days. Uh, wouldn't be the first time that's happened. But Martin, whose nose is out of joint at Ducati, I think is looking for passes new. So does that mean that Yamaha knows that Toprak doesn't want to go to MotoGP? Or maybe they're just considering it perhaps too much of a risk or the demands coming from the Turkish camp are a bit too high. I don't know. I mean, who knows? But I think if you're going to choose between the two, you'd probably go Martin just because he's a MotoGP rider already. Or is it as you have speculated, there will be a satellite team in four Yamahas? Because the one thing that Tom O'Kane is going to make very clear is that I have two bikes for data. I would like two more bikes for data. Yeah, I can't conceive that there won't be two more Yamahas on the grid next year. I just mm-hmm. can't conceive that that is possible, really. Unless they were to do the whole V4 thing, in which case they might just want to go that alone for another season, perhaps. But no, I'm I'm pretty sure the Rossi team will be running Yamahas from next yeah. year onwards. Yeah, They're kind of stupid not to, really. Mm. But, you know, Yamaha going to a V4, like I said, it's not... They're going to go there. If they go there, they're going to go kicking and screaming because if you remember back in the 90s, late part of the 90s, there was always that talk that Yamaha was going to build a single crank 500 because they had always made two cranks and they counter-rotated. The idea was that, and it's true, you cancel the gyro effect of the crank. Honda never ever did, and Honda kind of like figured out with the big bang, putting the firing order real close to each other, that you could make this 500 a whole lot more rideable. And Yamaha actually built one, but it was in dark, deep secret, and they built one. But they never saw the light of day. But then again, you were also pretty much at that point, you knew you were heading to four strokes. Mm. There was not going to be much more happening with the twos. So, eh. Who knows what they're going to do, but if they built a V4, it would be interesting. Yeah, although it would be a shame because, I mean, one of the things that I personally loved when MotoGP went four-stroke was, and obviously the rules were much more open, in theory, people could run. And I believe, again, I believe Honda did have a a six-cylinder on the test bench, but ultimately Mm. obviously went with the V5, which itself was very clever because of the way they configured that V Mm -hmm. formation, but so they didn't need the counter-rotating balancing shaft or whatever the technical term for it is you know and even now i don't think anybody really knows exactly how that engine worked yeah i mean you had the the aprilia cube triple you know various four cylinders across the frames and then the v5s and so on so yeah it's a little bit shame when everything sort of homogenizes down to a single solution i think that's generally not great from a spectating and fan point of view but it's just the way that the evolution of things and refinement of things goes, I suppose. So Yamaha is now the outlier, which is a shame. And hopefully, you know, they won't change, but we'll see. Anyway, should we talk a little bit of World Superbike? Yeah. Why, don't you, why don't you take us through World Superbike? Not a huge amount to say. And got a couple of people that we're hoping to get on that will talk to us in a bit more detail with regards to World Superbike. But we've recently had tests in both Jerez and Portimao. The season actually kicks off in just, what is it going to be, Jim? Three weeks, just under three yeah. weeks' time now. So not too long till we've got some proper race live action again. My wife's probably going to be groaning in the background. Um, usual suspects at the front in testing. Won't come as any great surprise to hear that Razgatioglu, Bautista and Ray were topping the timesheets. But it's pretty crowded, close by behind in terms of your Alex Lowe's, your Rinaldi's, uh, Remy Gardner, Domi Agata. Uh, rookies into that class, obviously, now have been showing very, very well. So the signs are that it's going to be another brilliant World Superbike season. I mean, it's a problem because trying to watch all of this racing is obviously it's quite a challenge. Uh, but World Superbike is going to be unmissable this year. And yeah, 
as you've said in the notes there, I think it is going to be a stellar season. Ducati have got yet another new Panigale out. If it's any faster, I don't know how they're going to contain Bautista. But the debate is still raging on about the minimum weight limit in World Superbike. To my knowledge, nothing has been issued by way of a rule on that. So as things stand, you know, the heavier riders, the taller riders are still at a bit of a disadvantage. But we shall see. Uh, BSB, not a huge amount of news because the vagaries of the British weather mean that the season itself doesn't kick off in earnest until April. There's a few tests in the early part of April and even towards the end of March as well. One thing I did just want to mention, because he's going to come on and have a chat to us in a few days' time, so we'll release a show in a week or two's time. A young lad called Asher Durham, he's just been signed up with the GNS Racing Kawasaki team in Junior Supersport. He was in Junior Supersport last year. Um, He's a very interesting character. I've met him a couple of times in the pits. Been trying to get him on for a little while, so I'm going to be chatting to him on Friday. So we'll probably do a bit of a BSB preview show at some point in the next two to three weeks, and we'll put the Asher Durham uh, chat into there. and just one other thing to mention, which is that a guy that a bit like a boomerang, he, sort of, he always seems to come back. Hector Barbara is popping up in BSB this year. So he's going to be riding in BSB on the tag racing Honda team. Now, he was in Moto America. I think he was in last year, wasn't he, Jim? Was he riding yes. a Suzuki or perhaps a BMW? I'm trying to think now. I think it was on a BMW, I believe. Yeah. I'm not 100% on that. Obviously, he was in MotoGP for most of his career and then he sort of bounced around the various national uh, superbike championships ever since and he has been in BSB before I can't off the top of my head think how particularly successfully he was but anyway he's going to be back racing in the UK next year which is pretty cool and then the only other thing was a little bit of stuff that I spotted on Motor America Jim which I'll let you handle that one yep of course had to happen after Scott Bolden and I talked about the upcoming yeah. season but Tony Elias is back. He is back in Moto America. He's going to be part of the Vism Wheel M4 X-Star Suzuki, you know, ran by Allrich, uh, back <laughs> in the Superbike class. So it's going to be interesting because there is now a good crop of top riders in the top class on top equipment. Yeah. So between Cam, Gagne, Skultz, Elias, and I'm going to forget the other people, but there's now probably a good six riders that can win on any given day given the right conditions and whatnot so yeah heron was the other one i was trying to think of so this could be a really good moto america season i hope so because there's some really good tracks in moto america as well i don't know uh, whether pj jacobson's back in moto america he is i'm hoping he is oh good okay because he was showing pretty strong on the bmw i think it was as well uh certainly towards the latter part of last year because i remember watching several of those rounds obviously as the title fight went through with Gagne and Petrucci I was taking a particular interest but I'll be tuning into Moto America again this year for sure because as you say it is quite a strong field again it's gotten very strong so yeah and it was a great yeah, chat with Scott by the way you know, it was great to hear his insights after such a long time as well oh, so yeah. we'll yeah. have to catch up with Scott again later in the season yep so we can definitely do that all right that's everything from the news so let's just go to our much awaited awards for Moto3 because <laughs> that's the last class we have not gotten to yet so we will go there so Rich, why don't you kick us off? Give us your number 10. I'll just preface this, Jim, by saying that we, uh, we're just doing the top 10 here, I think, because it's a big field of riders. And because of the nature of Moto3, you get a lot of standing riders through the season as well. So you just can't really do the sort of the bottom 5, 10. It's not really fair. So I just thought, just focusing on the top 10. Um, so 
In 10th place for me is John McPhee. Okay. Now, final Moto3 season for, yeah, the Scott, as you say. So he finished 11th in the standings on 102 points, which on the face of it doesn't look great, but he did miss five rounds because he got quite badly injured at the very beginning of the season. Practicing on a super moto bike and broke his... Back? He did some vertebrae, didn't he? Yeah. You're right, it was a training accident. So he obviously he missed a chunk of the season, but I've put him in tent because, like he always does, he battles his way back. He is quite inconsistent historically in Moto3, John, but you know he won that penultimate race in Sepang. And for me, probably the pass of the season going into the final turn in that race. Uh, I think he overtook like three or four bikes in that final hairpin turn. It was just a great, great move. So I think the fact that he pulled that overtake off, won that, his penultimate race in the class, puts him in 10th place for me, even though it wasn't a great season because he missed a decent chunk of it. He's off, as a footnote, he's off to World Super Sport. That is confirmed now in 2023 okay. with that's the good. Pichetti Kawasaki squad. So that's a pretty decent squad that he's going to be with there. So um, yeah, we'll look forward to seeing how he does again. What? Yeah, three weekends time, I think it is, down in Phillip Island. Yep, this is the hardest class to try to figure out who's there. It is. This is going to be all over the place. But for me, I put Mino in 10 because he had some flashes of the Mino that you wanted to see. There was a law in the season somewhere. He was at or near and consistently in the top 10. So I threw him there at number 10. Okay, for me in ninth, and again, people are going to start wolf whistling from the backgrounds, but I've got Scott Ogden, so I've got another Brit in there. But, you know, Scott, he's a rookie in the class, and I don't think it should be overlooked that although it was the sort of the phoenix rising out of the flames of the old Patronus Moto3 squad, the Vision Track Michael Laverty team was still a you know a new squad really for the most part so i think you know the fact that scott was a rookie so was his teammate josh watley who didn't have as good a, a season as scott but he's younger less experienced i just thought that scott had a really good opening season it was a season of two halves it was really good in the first half and then it kind of slipped away a little bit in the second half of the season i'm talking to scott in a couple of days and that's another interview we've got coming onto the show um, so we'll be able to get a bit more insight you know straight from the horse's mouth on that but highlight of the season, you know, he came home in 12th place, which was his joint best result of the season. And that was at home in Silverstone, uh, which was a great result for him. So I think overall, bearing in mind, class rookie, a lot of pressure because he's a Brit. You know, the Brits are under pressure always like the, like the Americans are because there's not too many of, of them around. So there's a lot of pressure to perform. And I thought it was a solid first entry and, you know, looking forward to seeing what he can do this season. Yep. Uh, good points. At nine, I put John McPhee on the strength of the comeback Missing five rounds, he came back. He came back to win a race, which I thought was impressive. It is, as you said, he has his ups, he has his downs, but I put him there at nine. Okay, uh, so eighth place for me is Yamanaka, the young Japanese Yamanaka. rider, another fast Japanese guy. Often in the leading groups, maybe not right at the sharp end, but always in that kind of top 10, top 15 mix. And let's remember, Moto3 is a crowded old you know, field of, of riders and it's, it's kind of cutthroat. Certainly lacks consistency, but again, just a very solid year, I thought, and probably one to watch in 2023 because he's moving across to the Gas Gas Aspar team either in, well, both Garcia and, and obviously Gravara have left that team now to go up to Moto2. So earning that ride obviously tells you something important, I think. I was going to put Danny Holgado in eighth place, but Holgado just was a little bit, I thought, a little bit underwhelmed. Although he did finish higher in the championship than Yamanaka. But, you know, Yamanaka's going to Gas Gas, whereas Holgado's gone from the IO KTM team. And he's been bumped down to the, that sounds a bit rude, but he's going down to the Tech 3 KTM squad. So kind of going in different directions in a way. So for me, Yamanaka just about squeezed into eighth place on that one. Eighth place for me is Marcia. 
So mm. the reason being that he had some good races. He had a long point where I think he lost his way, but he did start to bring it back at the end of the year. And he did enough to move back to Leopard and yeah. take that ride. So there must be something there. So I kind of have it there. Well, it remains to be seen what will happen, but it's close. I'll just sort of reveal now. I don't have Master in my top 10. I mean, he was one of the guys that for me was so up and down. Yeah. I didn't have Yamanaka in there because yeah, I thought I... Yamanaka was too up and down. It, this is so subjective in Moto3. It's, it's Moto3. This is going to be different. You know? yeah. this, everybody sees it. I mean, I didn't have Helgardo in my list at all. No. And yeah, he finished in, let me just see on the list here. I mean, Helgardo did finish 10th in the championship. So it was by I no know, means it's... a bad season exactly there's so much talent there's so much talent right and part of it is to me we don't live in the paddock so we don't know all the fine nuance that everybody else is in tune with Mm. and in that case it's like i kind of had tiebreakers i was like well whose name got called more during a season and how and the people who are on the my list those names are more prevalently stated during the season in the race coverage than Hogardas was i agree which is the only way i could come up to tie break any of it so yeah Okay, so in seventh place, and again, perhaps slightly controversially, but I've got Dennis Foggia. Now, he's quite low down, bearing in mind he did finish third in the championship. And, you know, he won four races and had four other podiums beside the four wins. But three retirements and just too many no-shows. You know, those Sundays that he's notorious for where, you know, he finishes in 21st or 18th or something. And ultimately, that lack of consistency in a cutthroat series like Moto3 cost him the title yet again. Now... He's dodged the bullet in the sense that he gets up to Moto2 for the season and we'll see how he does on the bigger bike. It might well suit him because he's been a Moto3 a long, long time. But I just thought for a guy who was championship favourite or certainly one of the two or three championship favourites going into the season and with the experience that he has to not even finish runner-up, but, you know, third place, you know, I was just disappointed. So he puts him seventh on my list. Yep. I have Munoz at seven. Ooh, I'm surprised. The thing of it is, is that he was always... Kind of in a mix somewhere, banging into somebody and doing something. Now, is that a legal reason to put him in the top 10? I don't know, but he's trying to make a name for himself. And so I'm going to put him there. Mm -hmm. If I get a team, I'm looking at what that kid has done. And I'm thinking, I need to get him now before everybody else sees what he may have. So. Yeah, fair enough. So where are we up to? Uh, sixth uh, place. Six. Yeah, so I've got um, Sergio Garcia in sixth. Now, again, this is the guy that finished second on 257 yeah. points. But for me, a bit like Fodger's season in a way. I mean, he's great on his day, but definitely was shown up by his younger teammate, as we will come to in a little while. And, you know, there was that kind of bizarre Mizano race where he fell off. I can't remember if he got into a collision with somebody else. I think he might have done, but he went into the pits and then came back out and then started tooling with the lead and ultimately got black flagged and it's like really so again he's going up to moto 2 so he's done all right for himself but and he did finish second in the championship but again probably would have expected to have won the championship Mm. so all in all i for me it just was a bit disappointing really uh, when all was said and done so hence the sixth place on my list marrera in sixth place for me again it's the it's the up-and-coming kid charging through making a name for himself i think he did a lot to put his name out there that He's not got a different ride for next year, but if he keeps this up on the team that he's on, the IOs, the Gas Gas, the Tag 3, those people are going to start coming to knock on his door and ask, what are your 2024 plans? So Yeah, totally agree. He's there for me. My fifth place, and I'm guessing he's obviously higher up your list, is Dennis Onshu. No, I have Onshu at fifth. 
Ah, okay. So we're on this the same. Very, yeah, we're on the same yeah. page. Then. All right, we're so on the same page here. For me, on choose one of these guys is sort of piecing the puzzle together bit by bit. I mean, 2022 was undoubtedly his best season yet. Uh, but he's not quite there. But, you know, he had a very strong end of the season, second place in Valencia, if we recall. And overall, his change in attitude as much as anything, because his speed is not in doubt, has earned him the call-up to the Red Bull IO team, which is the plum seat, I think we can probably mm-hmm. say. I agree with that. And so next year, you know, he has to deliver and he has to win some races next year. Agreed. He has to come good on the opportunity that he has been given. Now, say what you want. I think Anchu has struggled tremendously. I do think that whatever was going on, and we've talked of, at length about his uh, entourage and all of that. And I think he finally looked at this and said, enough is enough. If I'm going there or I want to go there, wherever, however you want to look at it, this has got to be the priority of what it is that I do. And to that, I will give Anchu a tremendous amount of credit because in the second half of the season and more towards that last fourth of the season, mm. Anchu did not play around with everybody else in qualifying. He went out by himself and said, I'm setting laps. I'm working on myself, my setup, and I'm going to ride the wheels off of this thing. And you know he was on the Tech 3 squad and not the actual two factory squads of Io and Gas Gas. Mm -hmm. And you can see his bike did not have the horsepower of the other two bikes. Now, whether that's all this (laughs) fiddling that we keep hearing about (laughs) in Moto3 that people are cheating by changing things in the bikes that they're not supposed to be changing remains to be seen. But just his attitude alone helped me put him there in fifth. And I'll tell you what, Jim, I must just mention, because it's just come back to me, one of the things that really impressed me, and I think it was quite early in the season, it might even have been Jerez, but do you remember he couldn't quite get out of the pits in time and or he had a time disallowed, which didn't put him through to Q1 or something like that. Now, a lot of people in his position, and I suspect a year or two ago, he would have really thrown his toys out of the pram. There'd have been lots of histrionics, lots of kicking things and shouting at people and so on but he just calmly just dealt with it i thought oh there's a bit of a change here and that did start to show itself as the year went on so yeah i've got really high hopes of dennis on next year but he does need to win some races Fourth for me, I've got Diego Moreira. Okay. Again, I've tended, my list is perhaps more reflective of the rookies who showed speed or promise. Admittedly, there will be a lot of inconsistency by nature of the fact that they're kind of class rookies, I suppose, although they're not new to Moto3 machines, as we've spoken about a lot. But Moreira came in. I mean, let's not forget, he was Maverick Vinales's um, tip for the title. I think Moreira yeah. is a rookie anyway. He might have done a wild card or two perhaps the season before, but I think it was his first full season. But very fast, very feisty, quite inconsistent. A good first half of the season it kind of went away a little bit he stays with the same team I think you mentioned that a minute ago Jim MT Helmets or MSI squad which is a bit of a surprise in a way because I thought possibly he might have been picked up but it's not a bad team I mean none of these no it's not a bad team but it could have been that he had an entry deal for two years they were going to hold on to him and either nobody wants to pay to let him out or he can't pay he can't afford to pay to let him out yeah or get out sorry so there's a lot and again this is those backdoor dealings that you and I know nothing about that you've got to believe are going on somewhere in there right yes if he's anything like he was last year he is destined for one of the prime squads mm, yeah he's that's where he's going so i think i got my analysis around the wrong way so the first sort of half maybe not quite two-thirds of the season was several retirements there was a did not start 
for some reason. That's probably an injury. But then from Silverstone onwards, sixth, uh, sixth, seventh, the fifteenth, sixth, and it goes on. You know, six, seven, five kind of positions. So you know, really showed strongly towards the end of the year and started to find some consistency. So that bodes well heading into this season. So that was my number four. Yeah, four. You're not going to like. I have Fazia there. Huh. I, I have him there because I thought that he was doing well at the beginning of the season. The crash on the tear off at Magello was like okay bizarre yeah bizarre and there's something else there now i'm gonna let Fajia off the hook a little bit because i think his mind went away in the middle part of the season because he was negotiating to get to a moto two ride and his he took his eyes off of the ball i think he's a much better rider than he how do i say that he's better than he showed because we know that from previous seasons there that's a better way of saying it yeah and i think he just lost you know his mind was not settled with what was going on and i do think that the honda was definitely not the motorcycle to have it was definitely a ktm clone yeah and so i think given what he had he had a run of some success that he did string together that made you stop and think he might be the guy that can catch these two out front but it never materialized but i thought he was good enough to be fourth because he's going to a tau trance he's so he's got a decent is he going to it's the tau chan yes it is yeah so he's got a he has a decent moto two team to go to so as we said i mean he Success, finished third right. in the championship and won yeah. four races so i mean that is by no exactly. means a shabby season by anybody's no, it's measure. not shabby no it's not so i had munoz in third oh, okay. place now again a bit like Moreira, really but let's remember he didn't even start the season until round eight true very very larry <laughs> way too aggressive i mean kind of picked up dennis onchu's mantle from a season or two ago and mm. was lucky not to get reprimanded a bit more than he did because i think he did full foul of the rules i think at aragon he took somebody out didn't he yeah i forget who so definitely too aggressive but big capital letters but i mean jesus he's really really quick and he certainly isn't afraid to have a go so sticks with the same team again if he can calm it down a little bit i'd even go so far as to say he could be a title contender yeah very possible they're the two very shining bright rookies of the year right there you can see the reason these kids are where they are and you can see where they're going to go in a year or two yeah right the thing of it is now you have to be 18 to be in Moto3 in the World Championship. So a lot of these kids are going to stay because there's not kids coming, right? Yeah. So there's going to be this transition point where a lot of people are probably going to stay in the class for a couple, two, three years. So it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, a Munoz Morera onto fight is going to be pretty cool to watch mm. if it materializes. We don't know. The problem some of them have got, and Dennis Onchu's definitely got this problem, is they're getting a bit too big for Moto3 bikes. So they yeah. do need to go up. I mean, that's obviously is a problem but whilst we've and as let's say there's no sign of any new MotoGP teams turning up on the grid so we've got a log jam you know and there are I can think of a few riders in MotoGP that probably ought to be looking towards spending more time on the beach on a Sunday or a world superbike well we'll go somewhere else yeah I mean we could probably name a few a model two riders I mean Alesh Spargro has come out recently and said that he doesn't intend to ride much beyond the next couple of years I think so I mean there will be yeah. some spaces opening up but there is a log jam at the moment of people that should be going up through the various classes but anyway well who did you have in third uh garcia i had garcia third okay it's the kid who finished second right mm-hmm. he came on like gangbusters at the beginning of the year it looked great i think he got involved in negotiations and put the cart before the horse instead of thinking about winning a championship i think he thought more about what he was going to do with his career afterwards stardom and limelight and being popular and being that are all dangerous things for someone who is 16, 17, 18 years old, right? Mm. But he did get a ride in Moto2. 
He did finish second in the championship. He did turn it around at the end of the year once he had the, you know, once the check cleared and he was into Moto2, he turned it around. And what you saw at the beginning of the year, you saw at the end of the year. So I put him third. Yeah, he finished off with three third places in the last three yeah. rounds. So that's pretty good. Yeah. Yep. I had a real problem with my number two and number one spots here. I mean, I, okay. I think we've probably both got the same number one. I'm wondering if we don't have the same one and two, to be honest with Well, you. we might be around the other way. Okay, so the number two just is Sasaki for me. I have Sasaki there too. Yeah. I mean, I thought he was absolutely outstanding. It's just a little tiny bit. I mean, again, in such a crowded season with so many races, it's hard to remember back because it seems so long ago but the heartbreak of Qatar when he was leading kind of had the almost high side whack the fairing and the fairing sort of started to fall off didn't it and yes he looked nailed on to win that race at that point because he was a good few seconds up the road so there was that then there was a serious injury in Italy I think he had a qualifying crash with Masir I think and I damaged his neck um, he was out for a couple of rounds, but that was all redeemed. He had two wins, and I think a maiden win this last season. So he won in Assen. So I think that was his first Moto3 win. He did three on the trot, didn't he? He won in Assen, and then he won a couple of rounds later in the Red Bull Ring. I think that was the only okay. two wins that he had. I thought he had three. It was a coming-of-age season, either way, mm. uh, whichever way you look at it. Only really marred, I suppose, by having missed a couple of rounds, which probably took him out of contention, really. And by the fact that the Max Racing team's gone. So he actually moves I mean obviously stays in Moto3 but he's actually going to be in and I think this might be a new team Jim Liquid Molly Husqvarna team I don't know if that's a rebadged other team that's taken on a new sponsor oh. and they're now running the Huskies but anyway that's where he's going to be this year because the Max Racing Sterile Garda thing's gone really I don't remember seeing anything about that but then again I've been buried in work so yeah I think it I kind of came out I... towards the end of last season but as huh. to why I honestly yeah, can't tell you but yeah. obviously McPhee's gone out of the championship because sure. he's too old and that's where Sasaki's going to be this year but um, no so he finished fourth in the championship maybe Biagi just didn't want to travel the world anymore yeah we need to perhaps do a bit of digging or perhaps yeah. somebody that we're talking to later might be able to fit us in on that somebody but... might be able to yeah yeah, it's a good question we need to write that down <laughs> yeah so that was my sort of analysis for Sasaki so what did you sort of think on top of that I thought coming of age there was a string of podiums in there somewhere that was brilliant by the Japanese writer I mean it was he was taking it to Guevara and let's be fair with this he was every bit as good as Guevara for a good portion of that season in the middle and you hoped and believed that this was going to come down to maybe him and Guevara for the title but it didn't work there were some blips in the season but you know he won some races and that was key on his day he was as good as Guevara and you know that that Husqvarna is not probably the same state of tune as the gas gas or the IO KTMs, right? I think we can say that with a pretty good amount of confidence. So to do all that, I thought he deserved to be in second. Yeah. And I love the fact that Sasaki, Jake Dixon and Fabio Quattararo are like a little, yeah. <laughs> little threesome of mates. So they must get up to some pranks and some laughs in the in the paddock after the racing's done, I must say. Okay. So I think we've probably got the same guy in first place then. I mean, it's He wouldn't hard. happen to be the guy who won the world championship, would he? Uh, yeah. I mean, you cannot look past him, you can you? I mean, I've no. all I, my notes say stunning brilliant unstoppable he was he didn't finish two races Argentina his bike broke down I think he might have thrown a chain or something or the drive chain went it was a chain issue whether that was a misalignment a because it didn't look like the chain had exploded uh did it 
they break into two pieces and yeah smack I, can't back remember I don't remember it was a driveline issue and yeah that's one of those that you just don't ever think you rarely rare i mean think back to the last time you ever saw a chain get tossed doesn't happen very often does it it no. does not you think about the stress that is going through that chain, regardless of whether it's a Moto2 bike mm. or a MotoGP bike, and they don't break. Don't break. It's no. amazing. It is really amazing, actually. I mean, his only other non-finish was Silverstone, and he got massively Correct. T-boned going down into stone. And I think Sasaki themed him, didn't he? Uh, or was it something like or Tola? They both had messy Silverstones. But yeah, other than that, I mean, you just look at it. I mean, it's, all of it's kind of top 10 finishes and most of those are podium finishes. So, I mean, he was just... And there were races where he pulled something out of his hat. I, You and I, I know, had to have at least three or four times said, champions ride, champions ride, champions yeah. ride. Especially there at the end of the season because he won in Japan. He put a run together there in the Far East where he had some really, really sound races at the end. I mean, the pressure was starting to get on because Sasaki had kind of had put that pressure on him. It was, I mean, Sasaki was not super close, but there was every bit that like, hey, you've got to at least maintain your podium pace that you were on to keep this championship yours yeah and he he wound up didn't he win it all in malaysia he it was the first champion world champion crowned yeah he was yeah so he was i say he was knocked out of the race uh so absolutely no fault of his own in silverstone in austria he was seventh then in san marino he had a third he won aragon he won japan he was fifth in thailand that was a wet race yeah, that was or a wet, wet, race. wet dry race anyway wet dry, so, yeah some combination of patchy such. uh yeah. australia Phillip Island, he won. I mean, if you win right. at Phillip Island, you've got some. You, can, you. you are good, yes. <laughs> Malaysia was 12th. I can't remember if it was wet or if that was just a bag the points and take the championship kind of ride, but not. It was a bag the points and take the championship. And then he won thing. Valencia. So right. to finish off his to cap three. It off. So what can you say, Jim? I mean, he was an absolutely worthy champion. I mean, he was just brilliant, brilliant. all year long. Yeah. A bit like the sort of the Pedro Acosta thing. What's he going to do? How long is it going to take him to get to grips with the Motor 2 bike in the Gas Gas squad next to Jake Dixon? Probably not very long, I would think. Thing. I don't think so. What's interesting to me is my own personal take. At the beginning of the year, I thought Garcia was going to take this championship by the like a bull by the horns and just yeah. walk everybody. And I didn't think Guevara had that what it takes, the it factor. Thought the the please understand the kid is amazing, right? They're all at the world level. They're all absolutely amazing. But there's that little bit that separates the great from the incredible, and then that it separates the incredible from the amazing. And then you know there's that whole little level right yeah and for him to top his teammate as easily as he did and i'm not so sure that guevara didn't get in garcia's head i think he did jim to be honest i, I think mean, he might have too yeah uh, i mean let's just look at the numbers i mean these tell the tale so guevara finished up the year's champion on 319 and sergio garcia he was missing he did finish second as we said but on 257 so that was a long long way back i mean yeah you know I, i'm trying to remember uh guevara's 2021 championship was it 21 when he kind kind of picked up the win in uh Kota because of the big crash that happened and then they went back a lap and uh, ultimately Gravara who yeah. had gone out he'd sort of broken down but he actually got the win if you remember correct yes and he was that very sort of petulant up well, and down well, sort of guy rookie that year and then yeah. over the winter it, he just turned up to the first round it was like who's this kid yeah Mega, mega change. Garcia broke the suspension on the bike, threw his toys in the pram. Guevara, I think, was in the crash with Acosta. No, no, no. No, you know, no? Guevara definitely, okay. it was definitely his rear right. shot that failed. Okay. 
Um, right. He pulled into the pits, and then the, the next lap, that massive kind of air that, crash. Okay, the occurred. accident happened then. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which yeah, they yeah, didn't yeah. restart, so then they went back a lap, and Gravara had gone over the That's line right. first, or some, something like that. Anyway, or the or the second yeah. bit of the race rerun, they didn't, they cancelled it, or something like that. It was a right. Bit Everybody, of a... they they ran out of time for satellite, and the teams wanted to get out and get home because it was in the middle of COVID. Yeah, it's hard to remember back now, isn't it? It was because I remember being there. In October, you, well, you were there, weren't like, you? Yeah, because I was like, because we got there in October, and it was so blazing hot because we used to being there in April. And it's a very comfortable, low 70s Fahrenheit during the day than, you know, 50s Fahrenheit in the evening. And it was like, we were there in October and I remember we walked in and I'm sitting in the stands and this, there's not a cloud in the sky and it's just blazing hot sun. Baking, yeah. It just got cooked on that first day. <laughs> like, woof. Pack your factor, my friend. If you're coming, <laughs> pack your factor. All right. Yeah, it does get pretty hot in Texas. Yeah. So that's the top 10 then. That's Jim. it. Yep. Nice and neatly done. I agree. All good. Are we going to say what we're doing next? And because it will come in an episode or two's time, or do you want to keep under wraps? Go for it. Well, we're juggling time zones tonight. So, what is it for you there, Jim, at the minute? Uh, right now, it's almost 6 p.m. So, here. 6 p.m. for you, 11 p.m. for me. And we're going to be joined in an hour. So, we're obviously going to finish this one, come back and do a fresh recording. We're going to be talking to, well, we mustn't call her Maddie Scordia anymore because she's now married to the venerable Simon Patterson. So, she's now Maddie Patterson. We first came aware of Maddie. Uh, in particular because of that excellent article she wrote around the time that the Suzuki withdrawal from MotoGP was announced. So we spent a bit of time talking about the article that she had written uh, online. She's since got much more involved in other areas, which is what we want to talk to her about as well. So yeah, that'll be a show coming probably on the heels of this one as a standalone gym, won't it? So yeah, we're going to be doing that shortly. So that'll be uh, hopefully more great content for everybody to listen to. Look forward to 718 because the Maddie show will be 718, guys. Yeah. Okay, so there we go. All right. Well, well, that's it, guys. This is 717 in the can. The only thing I'm going to say, Jim, is um, I can't remember if I mentioned it earlier or not, but I'm talking to yeah Scott Ogden on Thursday this week. So all being well, there'll be a Zoom Zoom coming up in a moment. And next thing you'll hear, will be me talking to Scott. So yeah, we'll see you next time. Scott Ogden, welcome for the first time to Motopod. It's a great pleasure to have you on. Now, it's taken a bit of time to get this one organised, hasn't it? So we're on the clock on this one. So what I wanted to do was talk a little bit about last season, obviously talk a little bit about the season ahead. But before we do that, just for the benefit of the Motopod listeners who are spread all around the world, um, who might not be so totally familiar with your background, let's say, how did it all get going for you? I know your dad was a racer. I think he competed on the Isle of Man, didn't he, back in the day? So how did sort of two-wheel activity start for you back in the day? Um, it was really just since I was a kid, we did it straight away. I, I had a PW50. I think like a lot of racers in my generation, we all started on PW50s. So yeah. yeah, when I was three years old, my dad got me my first bike and I rode around my grandma's field a little bit and yeah, sort of fell in love with it at that point and we didn't really know, like he was a road racer, but we sort of went down the motocross route for the first maybe 10 years, eight, nine years. So mm-hmm. yeah, we did motocross to start with and then it sort of, I switched quite late. So it wasn't really like any aspiration to be anything in the sport. It was just for, for fun and just see what we can do. And yeah, it went okay. So each year after that, we moved forward and yeah, eventually we're, we're here now in, in Moto3. So I believe looking at your bio, you were about 12 years old when you sort of made the transition across from motocross to tarmac track racing, let's say. So yeah. was there anything in particular that 
that prompted that? I mean, were you getting injured in motocross or just it was time to go road racing? Yeah, that we sort of went and watched. It was the other championship to Fab Racing. I think British minibikes. I don't know what it was called at the time. Mm. But we went and watched someone we knew there. And we just, at that point, realised that it'd be good to try it. And yeah, from, I think, a few weeks after that, my dad bought a bike and a Metricit 50, I think it was. And yeah, we just went from there. That's another bike name you hear coming up quite a lot for people from your generation. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that I don't want to be too contentious here, but British riders, historically anyway, haven't kind of had the the profile and the support that perhaps might be true of, say, Spanish riders or Italian riders. So can you speak a little bit about the, or give the listeners a sense, let's say, of the experience you had in terms of the commitment and probably the struggle in that very early phase of your road racing career to kind of get going? I mean, presumably there were some particular people, sponsors perhaps, that really supported you in that early stage to get you going. Is there anybody that kind of really stands out? Yeah, the, the big thing was the the championship itself, Fab, Cool Fab Racing it was at the time. Mm-hmm. It's um, Rob and Roger, they do such a big thing for the sport and they're trying to push kids through and now they've got a programme where they've got one, two, five met kits in Spain and they're just helping kids. So they were the big thing for me and, and my dad, they were so welcoming at the time and they just kept helping and pushing us on and giving us advice. And yeah, it, it's not like Spain where you come to Spain they've got big teams already in the junior categories mm. so it's not like that but at the same time there, there is that that pathway through for Brits especially now with the British Talent Cup that was such a big thing for for everybody so yeah, yeah it, it, the big thing for me was certain people involved in in motorsport who just try to push the kids through and just try to help them and develop them so yeah Cool Fab was definitely a, a big start or a big part of my start to racing interesting do you think things are sort of appreciably better now then you mentioned quite rightly the talent cup in britain i mean obviously this is something we're seeing launched around the world uh, in the various national series but do you think things are getting easier for the youngsters now i mean obviously we've got the age limit thing which is a bit of a different issue i suppose but uh, compared to when you were coming up through the ranks do you think there is genuinely more support now for the brits yeah 100% i think what the british ta- when i did the british talent cup it was in a different format but mm-hmm. it, it was still good but now especially they've got a good championship it's a respected championship especially with the guys that have won it recently doing so well in european talent cup so yeah, yeah it's, i think now it's it's not easier because they've still got to get the results but there's definitely that route through with michael or with donna to get to the very top of the spot yeah so just looking back at the bio a little bit in terms of you know when you got going in the smaller classes moto star as it was called then i mean it's kind of talent cup now but moto star british moto three champion in 2019 then you had two seasons and i believe i'm right in saying that you were combining red bull rookies and the spanish cv junior world championship you did that for a couple of years was it in yeah 2020 2021 was it yeah talk to us a little bit about how it was going from the british scene and what was involved because you know you live in spain now presumably that was all part and parcel of that move up to that next level of competition yeah, it was it was a big step, especially like not so much the the riding on track, but being off track with like the Junior World Championship. Red Bull Rookie is a little bit different, but the Junior World Championship is basically Moto Three, but with younger riders. Yeah. So the teams are so professional, and that was a big step for me, just because the year before I was with my dad, so it was his team and. It was a bit of a family-run team, so it wasn't so much like that. So to then go to, uh, for the first year I rode with the British talent team, it was a completely new experience. But yeah, once I got my head around how teams properly work and what they expect from you and off track, not just on track, it it, it was good. It was difficult to get the results straight away, but eventually after about a year and a half, it started all to click. And yeah, it's quite a good championship because the times that they set at the front is the same as the times mid-pack in Moto3. So yeah. it is good 
good competition and it's good to see where your level is at. And without getting too far into sort of the prying, but I'm always interested in the sort of the nitty gritty details. So were you still based in the UK when you were competing, say that first year in Spain or did you, um, did the family relocate? I mean, what was involved from a sort of a family point of view? Because you're still only, what, 19 now, are you? So you're yeah. obviously a young lad then. So how did that actually practically work? Yeah, the first year was because COVID hit and it was the peak of it. It was like the first year we just kept traveling. The season didn't start until I think it was July, maybe Mm. in the end. So it was like we traveled to and from. And then at the end of the year, we went out in the motorhome because we had eight weeks where we had seven races back to back. So we just stayed in the motorhome out there. And then the second year we decided, well, I moved to the Aspar team and me and my dad decided it it would be good for me to go out there just because the Aspar team have training camps all winter Mm -hmm. and you don't really know when they are so it's better just to be there and when they give you the call you can just go to the track so yeah me and my dad moved my mum stayed at home with my brother and yeah it was difficult I think it was difficult for all of us but at the same time it was a good decision because it definitely brought me on as a rider and yeah the Spanish the way they work is every day the tracks are open you can ride all day if you want but they go for maybe two hours a day push as hard as you can and then pack up and go home so yeah it was good to experience that and I think that's what made me take the next step in my riding yeah it's fascinating and I guess what's the word a little bit humbling I suppose to hear that you know the family effectively split to allow you to go and pursue your dream with your dad obviously because you were still a very young lad at that point so are you living on your own in Spain now or you still got some family with you my family's at home so I live in Spain with another rider and and his mom and they've let me stay with them which is really nice they're like a second family now so Yeah. yeah it's nice to to be with them and I can help Matthew who is the kid I can help him a little bit with the training so yeah it's quite good for both of us gotcha and with the Aspar setup that you were going through at that time did that involve things like some media training for example to help prepare you for that because the other thing it's not just about competing on track is it I mean you have enormous demands the further you go in the sport in terms of your time well you're talking to me now although I'm an amateur but you know how much of that sort of off the bike preparation was there during that first couple of years in Spain? To be fair, not so much in the Aspar team. They wasn't really focused on it. But in the Dorna programme, when I was in the British Talent Cup and the junior talent team, we always did interviews. So especially British Talent Cup, they they sort of, they gave us some words to use at the start of the year, but they sort of just let us learn on our own. But they gave us a lot of interviews to do. So after a time, you, you eventually got the gist of it. And yeah, with the junior talent team, we maybe did one big interview at, at the end of every weekend but with Aspar not so much so yeah I think I picked it up in the early stages of the British Talent Cup but then when you move to Moda 3 it's a little bit a little bit harder because in the British Talent Cup you sort of if you've done well you get interviewed whereas the big thing for me was last year when you haven't done well then to be interviewed it's quite a difficult position to be in because you've got to be professional but then at the same time being 18 it was hard with the the emotions so yeah that was a big learning curve last year to get also being interviewed at, at bad moments, not just the good ones. Yeah, with your experience now, I mean, I'm going to take issue with you slightly about you talking about sort of bad <laughs> things being bad last year. But I mean, I guess there were obviously certain occasions when things didn't go as you would have hoped. But we'll come to, to 2022 in a minute. But I mean, is it an area that you think with your perspective now that you are a little bit older and a bit more experienced, let's say, do you think that that kind of media training and just dealing with the pressure and the demands, is that an area you think, the sport as a whole maybe Dorna in particular and the national series ought to be trying to focus in on a bit more 
Yeah, I think it, it's a big, like, having the cameras always in your face it, when you move to GPs is quite a big shock. So I think if they can push that into the junior categories a little bit more, it, it would be beneficial for the kids coming up because, like, especially the Junior World Championship, there's so much level there. But then at the same time, it's not televised. Like, for me, not many people knew who I was when I stepped to the World Championship, even though I'd won a race and got podiums in the Junior World Championship. So yeah. I think to try to get that more publicised and more on a bigger scale would be good for the kids and would also be good for the championship yeah i mean it's worth pointing out just for the listeners again who might not be aware that in 2021 in the uh, cv you did actually finish sixth overall in the standings which you know in that field of riders is quite an achievement yeah it, it was it was a good year and like it was positive but then at the same time if you made the step it i look back at that and it didn't really matter so much where i finished because you see people like marrera i think he finished maybe 11th or 12th and mm. then last year he was a top rookie so yeah it, at the time i was really happy but now it, everyone's sort of clean slate no one sort of remembers that so it's just trying to prove myself in this championship now i was going to say that i suppose one benefit from a track perspective of being in the cv and red bull rookies for example is that the people you're racing against now in full-blown Moto3 Grand Prix you are familiar with in terms of being on track with quite a lot of those guys. Yeah, 100%, especially the last year when I moved up. I think I moved up with maybe 11 rookies or something, which yeah, was wow. quite, it's nearly a third of the, or it is a third of the grid. So it was quite a big pool of rookies. And I think it was quite a good pool of rookies because yeah. Munoz, Holgado, they've all shown themselves this year, so or last year. So yeah, I think I, I moved up with a good group of people. Yeah, definitely. Now, so you're racing for Michael Laverty's Vision Track Racing team, which was a team that emerged out of the ashes of the previous Patronus team by and large I think that's probably about right isn't it so how did that opportunity come about how early the previous season in 2021 when you were still in the CV was that discussion going on with Michael it all happened so fast so I won the race in Hareth on the Aspa bike and sort of that week after sort of I got quite a lot of attention from certain people and then Michael rang or he sent me a message and sort of asked oh what are you doing next year and I didn't really have anything I didn't expect anything from it I thought he was just wondering because he's a beauty sport commentator yeah, yeah. I thought it was just just for the the TV but no uh, then the week after we had a race in Aragon and sort of there was a lot of rumors going around but I still hadn't really heard anything so once someone told me one of the journalists told me then sort of Michael then came to me and sort of said this is what's going to happen and I spoke with Anna Spalletta who helped me out through the British Talent Cup and still helps me out now and she sort of said it's your decision if you stay another year in the Junior World Championship or you step up and I think when you get an opportunity to step up you've got to take it whatever the team whatever the circumstances you've got to take it and in the end it was the perfect move for me Would it be fair to say that that was probably so far the happiest day of your life when Michael came over and had that discussion and said this is what we're planning yeah, definitely one of them because up until the the race win in Hareth, it sort of it hadn't been the season I expected, and it was like it was sort of make or break, and I didn't know whether I'd be back in the UK or carrying on with the Moto Three journey. So yeah, it was definitely a, a cool moment and a bit of relief. Yeah. So let's have a quick talk about last year. Then I was looking through the result sheet for the entire championship. You finished twenty third in standings overall. But when I look at the season on a grid, let's say, it was it kind of looks very much like a season of two halves. How do you sort of reflect back on it now? The first half of the season went really 
really well just over the first half up to Silverstone in fact and then thereafter things sort of tailed off a little bit now was that just a factor of it as the first time in the championship for you and for the team crucially probably as well how do you sort of how do you look back on that I think the the big thing was sort of like at the start of the year I sort of I just went in I didn't know what to expect and I sort of let my ride in ride and do all the talking and then in the second half of the year I sort of my head got the best of me a little bit and I started to overthink a lot of things and yeah I just got into a, a state of mind which wasn't good for me and it didn't help my riding and I ended up crashing a lot and I still like in some races I showed glimpses and I know I've still got the speed but it was just in the crucial moments I sort of just let the pressure and let my head just spiral out of control and yeah I struggled a little bit but at the same time I think that second half of the season sort of I don't know whether it's fired me up even more for this year because I, I no one wants second half of the season like that but then at the same time it for me it was a good thing and I've been able to learn a lot of things about myself and I've been able to now improve for the next year yeah I mean there's absolutely no substitute for experience at the end of the day is there and you know I mean when you look at that well when you look at the season as a whole I mean my co-host Jim McDowell we often talk about this I mean it is a very big calendar of races and it's a grueling schedule isn't it and particularly with all the flyaways towards the end of the season which always seems a little bit kind of um, sadistic really in terms of the way that they put that championship together I mean presumably there must have been quite a lot of fatigue involved both for you and the team as that year went on you know with it being a brand new experience yeah 100 it, it was it was difficult especially when we went to the asian races and sort of like you had no rest so i got injured in australia and then i sort of just carried that injury for the last three races so mm. it's like it's difficult because it's there's no time to to regroup and then at the same time you can't just have a week off you got to be at the races still and when those guys are so fast if you're racing at 75 percent, then you're never going to beat them so yeah it was difficult it was a learning experience and i yeah. feel like i've got tools now to be able to handle the full 21 races if we get 21 this year so that'll be good and see my improvement from last year i mean just for the motopod listeners benefit i think you, when we were corresponding yesterday just to try and find this gap in your schedule today you've got what four training sessions is it scheduled for yeah today? i mean it's bloody bonkers <laughs> normally it's not it's not that bad but sort of like I had a week off of being ill so it was like oh now I've got to do more just the big thing in motor 3 is the weight so like you have a few days off and you get a couple of kilos back and then it's just trying to get that back off because yeah. in motor 3 if, if you're carrying a bit of extra weight then it's maybe it's not a lot but if it's a kilometre then it, it's a big thing in motor 3 yeah are you one of the taller riders I'm guessing you probably are aren't you physically yeah one of the taller not so stock but yeah I'm on that bigger end what were you called lanky in my day yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's difficult just because like in motor three everyone cares about being little being light because it is a bigger thing in motor three but then at the same time if you do well enough to get the opportunity in motor two then then you get your advantage in motor two so yeah yeah it's sacrificing stuff now but then at the end of the day it's the road well everyone i feel in motor three wants to be in motor gp so i think it's better for later on in your career yeah agreed uh, in terms of last year again obviously as we said you came up with 11 rookies from the the cv so a lot yeah. of people were familiar to you but how was it sharing the track with people like for example dennis foggia uh jama massey uh john mcfee you know seasoned professionals was there anybody that you kind of tagged onto at various times of the season and did you learn anything from the people that have been in the full moto three championship for you know multiple years yeah i feel like it wasn't so much of a big thing because i did cv for two years and then i did a wild card in 2019 also so it's like i sort of remember racing more or less all the riders mm -hmm. so it apart from a couple of the like John and Minya and stuff but I think just learning of their 
pure speed because CV, I feel, isn't so much slower. But in the qualifying session, the Moto3 guys find a lot more. And it was just learning where they find that time. And it was difficult to follow them in those sessions. But then even if you could follow them for four or five corners, you sort of understand, oh, they, they get it on the gas or the brakes. Or, so, yeah, it, it was good to follow them. And I feel like even though the results didn't show towards the end of the year, I feel like as a rider, I, I did get better. So, hmm. yeah, hopefully I can carry that into pre-season. And, yeah, I'm not expecting to be first in Hareth in a couple of weeks, but definitely make a big step and, yeah, try to get a good setup and race pace for the year ahead. Yeah. And did you kind of become friendly with somebody that you hadn't really encountered before? Because obviously you'll have been around rookies and, and sort of the younger end of the spectrum. So was there anybody that you sort of managed to spend a bit of time with and learn, a, you know, again, from the off track side of things? Was there anybody that kind of was helpful during last year for you? Um, it's difficult because then at the race weekends, everyone's so focused on their job at hand. But mm. John was definitely a good guy. He, he always was interested in how I was getting on. And yeah, I, I feel like he was probably the best sort of person in the paddock that helped me out the most. So yeah, he, he was a good guy and he's, he's won races. So he's not a bad guy to talk to. So yeah, he was definitely the one I took the most advice from and yeah some other Brits when Cal came he spoke to me a little bit and gave some words of wisdom but yeah all the Brits seem to be quite nice in the paddock when you try to speak to the Spanish and Italians it's a bit different but I think the Brits always want to help their own so yeah that was nice yeah I mean it's a shame I'd, I'd consider it a bit of an absurd rule just as a tangential thought that you know you've got the age limit in Moto3 because there are not that many riders hitting that age limit so I think it's a shame that John's been forced to go elsewhere although I'm sure he's going to do well in World Supersport on the Kawasaki but yeah it's a shame you've not got people like that there you know to help you a little bit again next year really or this year I should say yeah it's a shame John was a good guy and I feel like if he had the perfect season he's got the talent to win the championship so it's a shame for him but yeah he's on to a new adventure and I'm sure he'll do yeah yeah but there's still people like Sam Lowe's and I speak to Sam a little bit because my new crew chief sort of knows him and introduced me so it was nice to speak to Sam and yeah, it's good to have people like that still in the paddock. Yeah. What would you say was your particular highlight of this? I mean, I think I can probably guess, but was there a particular standout moment for you last year? Um, It's a weird one because, like, the obvious one for me was Mategi on the front row. It, it was a good day for me. But then at the same time, I sort of know that, like, not being cocky or anything, but I know that in the rain that I am a good wet rider. So it's sort of like I didn't prove to myself anything in that session. So I sort of, like, I backed myself in the rain and you don't win a chance championship off being good in the rain so mm. that one was good but then at the same time it was a little bit yeah it's not as good as it could be so I think the big one for me was it was a weird session it was Saxon Ring FP3 I think I finished fourth in that session and maybe point one off the lap record or something okay. that was a big one for me because it was my best dry session and like dry speed is quite important so it was nice for me to realise oh I can do it I can be up there and yeah that was a good one the race didn't quite go how I wanted it to go but still that weekend was a successful one yeah but the essential speed is there for everybody to see yeah I was sat in the stands uh, last August so how did finishing 12th at home sort of rank in terms of the year was it a I mean I thought that was a really great performance and a really great result for you I mean it was your joint best I think you had a couple of 12th place finishes last year didn't you and how was Silverstone as an experience anyway being a home round for you yeah, it was good. I sort of going into the weekend, I maybe put too much pressure on myself because mm. I like Silverstone. I thought I was going off the back of Assen wasn't great, but Saxon Ring was a good one. So that was just for the summer break. And I thought, oh, maybe we can get not a win, but a top five, a top 10. And yeah, I was quite disappointed overall just because I qualified really bad. And then 
I raced well, but well, I was fast in the race, but sort of just couldn't make too many overtake. It's hard when everyone's already on the limit of, mm-hmm. of how to ride a motorcycle to then go past the limit and try overtake. So yeah, it was a good race. I stayed in the front group, but overall, I'd, I'd like to be a little bit higher up and get in the mix. But yeah, I think that race helped me learn how to battle in a group. Like I wasn't battling at the front of the group, but I had a nice little battle at the back of the group with some good riders. So yeah, yeah it was difficult because I wanted to do better. But then at the same time, if I finished 12th, in some of the latter races at the end of the year I'd have been really happy so yeah overall it was a good weekend it was nice to see how many people were there supporting and to have my family there also because they didn't really get to any races so it was yeah. good to have them there again the motopod listeners are going to be picking up on the absolutely tremendous amount of pressure you put on yourselves and the very very yeah. very high standards that you set for yourselves because what you call a disappointment I would thought class as a, a you know a great achievement I suppose but that's the difference between you and me I suppose you're a competitor I'm not um looking forward to 2023 then what are the realistic goals and expectations for the season ahead Scott um I think realistically if I can finish top 10 in the championship I would take that as like a win but mm-hmm. then at the same time top 10 in the championship everything's got to go right so if I can be a consistent top 10 guy in the races because you're going to have problems I'm going to crash but in the races I don't crash and, and that we don't have any problems if I can be top 10 that would be really good and if the heavens open and we get a wet race then maybe do something special it'd be nice to get one podium throughout the year yeah and now I thought the Portimao test was the first test coming up but you mentioned Jerez a minute ago or is that not an official test it's like it's not official but then all the motor three teams are there and i think you've got to go to that one so right we've got two days with all the teams there and then the week after it's portimao official test and then the week after that's the race so yeah it's pretty hectic so we're kind of interested to try and lift the covers a little bit and see what goes on under the hood so to speak so with the tests coming up how much contact, if any, I mean, maybe it's nothing at all, but are you sort of in regular touch with the team at the minute in terms of planning and getting prepared or is it kind of a bit more last minute in Moto3? Um, I'm in contact a lot with my crew chief. So uh, I've got a new crew chief for this year and okay. we've been working together on, on the practice bike. We've been riding a CBR 1000. So mm-hmm. yeah, we've been doing that and he's been learning what I like and how I ride the bike and I've been learning how he debriefs. And yeah, he's then been able to try figure out a setting for the Moto3 bike based on the feelings I have on, on a bigger bike. So yeah, that's been good. I haven't had so much contact with the team, but I, I know they've been working hard and trying to get the bike that little bit better at whether it's 1% better or 10% better, a little bit better is better than nothing. So, yeah, I think everyone's working hard right now. I said a couple of times on the show that Michael Laverty strikes me as a person that somehow has managed to magic 48 hours into every day because I don't know how he juggles everything that he does. But, because um, I mean, one minute he's driving kit around in his van, then he's doing tax returns. I mean, it's just a bonkers lifestyle that that bloke lives. So, um, just to finish up, we'll just sort of start closing down and doing a couple of little light-hearted things. Longer term, you mean you alluded to Moto2 earlier on how I mean are you kind of looking at the path well obviously you must be looking at the path forward but is there a clear route that you have mapped out in your mind are there opportunities already what where do you stand in terms of moving up perhaps in a season or two's time um no opportunities at the moment but then I don't know it all in motorsport it all depends on on the results at the right time so yeah yeah see what I can do it'd be nice for Michael to magically have a Moto2 team and, <laughs> and I, I get to move up with him because I really enjoy working with him he, he's got the same sort of mindset and winning mindset so yeah but then at the end of the day you've got to take what you can get if, if I'm in Moto3 for three more years then, then I'm in Moto3 for three more years because that's how it falls but yeah, yeah. just got to keep working hard 
keep trying to get the, the best results I can do on, on certain days and, yeah, just see what happens. How about your teammate on the other side of the garage, Josh? I mean, he had a quieter season last year, but he's a bit younger and, again, would have been quite a stiff challenge. I've been trying to get Josh to come on the show as well, but he's another one that's quite, quite elusive and hard to track down. Yeah. You can give him a nudge for me, but um, how's the relationship with Josh? I mean, is he a guy that you've raced with? I'm, I'm guessing you probably haven't been together so much because there's a bit of an age difference there, isn't there? Um, it's surprising that we've raced against each other since my first year of racing. Oh, really? Okay. So, so yeah, so we've got quite a, like, we both want to beat each other so bad and <laughs> it's bad and good at the same time because then it, it pushes each other on. But yeah, it, the relationship's okay. We we don't speak or train so much outside of the racing, but then on the race weekends, we both want to do the best for the team. Yeah. Well, I suppose the old adage that the first person you want to beat is your teammate is always true, isn't it? I yeah. Mean, teammates a bit yeah. of a misnomer term I suppose in that context but um what was I gonna say one of my favorite sort of signature questions to ask people because uh, I'm just mindful of time and now this sort of will test your history of the sport a little bit I suppose any bike on any track from history so is there a particular bike if you had you know your dream you could say I'm gonna ride that bike from history might be last year might be something from the 1980s for all I know on that track is there anything that springs to mind in terms of oh yeah I'd love to do that um, I think I'd like to ride uh, Marquez's Derby. I think it was a Derby one two five. The IO bike when it was in the Red Bull colours around Donington Park. I think, oh, wow. and I don't know if they went to Donington Park the year he won the championship, but that would be the track I'd want to ride at because it's such a it's a mint track. It's it's local to me, so I like that one. That's a fascinating answer. All the two-stroke uh, fans out there will be absolutely loving that. So, uh, interesting, a 125. So, have you, are you one of these people that has a love affair with small capacity two-strokes then? Yeah, I love love two-strokes. I used to train all the time on, on 85 supermotos. And, yeah, for me, it's better. But then everything's now four-strokes. So, it's better to train on the same bike you're racing. So, I don't get so much time on one. But, yeah, hearing him sing is, is quite nice. And final question, outside of sort of specifically race-related training, let's say, I suspect you're going to give some sort of answer that's so grueling as to put most people in hospital for a week, but what's the go-to for relaxing or just, you know, spending a bit of downtime? How do you actually relax? Because you don't get a lot of chance to relax, I suppose, is really the question. No, I don't really relax at all now because I sort of, I found a love for triathlons. Oh, Christ. Oh, I told so, you. Yeah, so I knew it. <laughs> yeah. So, like, my weekends off now, at this year, I've got triathlon races planned. So, it's sort of training for that. Whenever I get a spare moment, I go to the swimming pool or, or join the group that goes out cycling every Saturday. So, yeah, for me, triathlons is my next thing away from motorbikes but i don't really ever sit down i don't like sitting down to be honest i prefer to be up on my feet and, and moving we well again for the benefit yeah. of the listeners he's sat in the car at the minute just about to drive off a few minutes worth of travel time i suppose to a gym <laughs> yet again so yeah yeah welcome to the life of scott Ogden. well scott look i know we've had to rush through this a little bit because your day is so packed uh, and i think you said you're off skiing for a couple of days as well yeah for the weekend where do people follow you on social media because it's important that you know as many people follow you as possible so what are your socials um scott ogden dot 19 on instagram and then i sort of don't use twitter or facebook anymore so like it's stupid but i feel they're the easiest ones to look at comments so i prefer now not to look at comments especially being a little yeah. bit more in in the light so i prefer just to use instagram and just occasionally post and then just i'm not so active but yeah, I do post about my race weekends and some stuff what I'm doing in the week. I'll take your point. For whatever reason, Instagram seems to be a less toxic place than certainly than Twitter is. I mean, that, that yeah. is without doubt the case. Okay, well, listeners, do please give Scott a follow on Instagram. 
Um, and I don't know any merch that people can look at if they really want to get behind you. Yeah, so on the one five ones like base layer um, website, if you go onto their riders and go onto the shop, I should have a hoodie and t-shirts on there. Cool. Okay. Well, for the British listeners who will be going to Silverstone, for example, let's make sure we see a few um, Scott Ogden number nineteen apparel out on track. So, yeah. <laughs> well, Scott, I mean, maybe we can catch up at some point again later in the year or at the end of the season because I know it's it's absolutely full on. Whether there'll be a chance to see each other face to face, I don't know. I'll be going to Silverstone yeah. in August, but I suppose all it remains really for me to say is thank you ever so much for giving us you know 45 minutes of your time because it's been a struggle to to slot this in and you've been very generous to do that and on behalf of myself jim my co-host and all the listeners really wish you the best of seasons and yeah i'm sure you're gonna have a good one thank you for having me brilliant cheers mate cheers